Hello, welcome to Research Matters, where we bring high quality research design to life in the business and management fields with Russ Glennon, Steve Wynn and Stephen Buzzduggan. Hello and welcome to week three of Research Matters, where we take an inside look at all things uh, research, philosophy, research design um, in the fields of business and management and law. So I'm here as usual with my co-host, Steve, Steve Wynn. Steve, say hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you. Um, and well, I'm, I'm probably going to hand over a chunk of lead in the discussion here to you, Steve, because you are, by any stretch, I think, our, our philosophy expert, it would be fair to say. Um, and uh, this is the week when it all starts to get a little bit sticky, I think, isn't it, in terms of um, our topics? Yeah, all those hours sat in corners staring into space come into play now. <laughs> it's all coming good. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so, so this week we are going to start considering um, what we've been calling the spectrum of ontology. And I suppose uh, behind that is our view that we want to keep pushing back on this understandable but perhaps limiting um, desire for lots of people to put themselves in a box and you know lots of this discussion ends up being well what's the box or what are the boxes and then how do I find my own box and I suppose we, we, we're just sort of gently pushing that back to say you know we need to do two things I guess elevate things up to you know a, a more theoretical conceptual domain to have a think about what this means and then zoom it right down into well what does this mean for our individual specific research projects so I guess we're expanding and contracting at the same time would that be fair yes definitely a dilatory movement isn't it uh, nice <laughs> uh, and in terms, i think that the spectrum is quite nice again because it does contrast as we've been saying there was about this idea that is a discrete collection of options mm. um, and of course many of the positions that we'll discuss today and, and in the future have emerged and intertwined and co-evolved so there's not that mm. degree of, of separation i think sometimes which um we want from a textbook presentation and i think what we want to do is, is engage a little bit and also thinking and reflecting on uh, the, the research philosophy in, in the wider sense mm, okay. mm, that's right okay well uh why don't you take it away well I, I will and i was thinking i've been thinking about this particular session for for some time and um i'm going to open with what i consider quite a contentious question for you uh Russ. i've heard around the water cooler that you are a realist and um, could could you give an account of, of that and explain yourself? <laughs> Please justify your entire existence as a human being. Um, um, I mean, I suppose just to to uh, to go back to your view, you know, we um, I'm a, I'm a realist researcher in as much as the approach that I tend to adopt when going through my uh, research is 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 one of realism. I suppose. Um, I did. I told the anecdote about my quants prof, uh, who was teaching me for my own research design uh, course, saying that you know he was a he was a positivist and he believed if he stood on the train tracks, blah blah blah, smeared over by uh, by the train coming from London, and and my perspective has always been, well, doesn't everyone think that? And you know there is often a sense in which we get this very polarizing debate or this very forced dichotomous debate that you know you either think that everything is absolutely true and concrete and you know we can access the inner workings of the universe or you know you believe that we live in the matrix and we're all plugged into a computer somewhere or whatever it would be um i suppose my position on that is yeah, very similar to my position on lots and lots of things i think really is uh, there's got to be some compromise it would be very difficult, I think, for me to deny the existence of a, a corporeal reality. You know, I, I, I have feelings, I can experience, you know, warmth and cold and, you know, the pleasure of uh, climbing into bed with fresh bedsheets and, you know, all sorts of things that I, I can perceive through my senses. However, I also believe that the meaning in social interaction is something that is constructed or negotiated in between various different sources. And I'm as comfortable, I think, with those being the words and actions of human beings as I am with them being uh, collective 
decisions or schema or institutional values or ways of working and those sorts of things. So for me, in terms of how I'm how I see the world when I want to research it, it, it is as a qualitative reacher, I very much find that I am focused on how we negotiate meaning between various often competing tensions. So I'm interested in um, discourses, we might say, you know, critical discourse analysis in the kind of norm, for me, Norman Fairclough kind of sense, um, who, who has written a lot about um, political language and political discourse, he wrote an excellent book called New Labour, New Language, um, talking about how the way that they framed um, you know, some of their things. And in fact, New Labour had something called the Modernization Programme. Now, from a discourse perspective, this immediately implies that they are positioning this as something that is modernising a civil service or, or uh, a government apparatus that is clearly not modern, is and if you're not modern, what are you? Well, you're old, you're old-fashioned, you're outdated, you're working in other ways. So, so sure, are those just words? Well, I suppose I did train as a linguist to begin with, and, and words are kind of my stock trade, um, I guess. So, I think I, I often see, as I said, their meaning in, in individual behaviours and actions and interactions as being this negotiation between um, overt forces and perhaps covert forces. You know, I can't, I can't see the MMU culture or, or my department, the strategy, enterprise and sustainability. I can't see that culture, but I could point at artifacts of that culture that for me make that clear how that culture operates and would allow me to anticipate people's responses or anticipate actions that that you know might be desired um, of my manager, but you know, uh, from my manager to me. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it, it does. Actually. I think I think it's really interesting there. It picks up a number of important themes from an ontological perspective, doesn't it? In terms of one of the core issues is, are you, you'll often find this in the organisation theory literature, are you a methodological individualist or are you a structuralist? So it's another one of our many, many binarisms that um, sort of inflect or infect the, the, the debate, yes. depending on, on the way yes. you look at it. Um, and, and it's that sort of... Is it just entities or is it processes that are operating? Is it power structures or is it sort of more naive interactions that, between people that we're uh, interested mm. in? And I think some, sometimes it, searching for elegance, pe people want to want to make you select one or the other because yes, they, yes. they fear the problems in terms of thought and theory if you start to try to mix the two. But I get a sense that you're... You didn't label it, but I, I will. Your critical realism, <laughs> if you put it that way. <laughs> I, I think this just does sound a little bit like sort of methodological anonymous. You know, hi, <laughs> hi, my name's Russ, and I'm a critical realist, and I have been for the last eleven years. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that I think it's that's making fair. no distinction, isn't it, between layers, layers of almost as though there's not just one type of reality, or there's not one thing we want to point to as reality, but maybe there are different mm. aspects of reality is that does that yeah. ring true do you think i think that very does that very much does for me um i think from uh, a kind of critical perspective or the critical bit of critical realist is probably where um i lean a bit towards more looking at the power structures and relationships that are exercised through institutional values and you know ways of working and power negotiations and i'm very um, I suppose I've never really kind of articulated this particularly clearly, but I, when I see people trying, um, trying the grounded theory approach, so they, you know, come in, in theory with, with no a priori, you know, knowledge or perceptions, I, I personally find it really hard to, to put myself in that mindset. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist because it clearly does. There's loads of books about it for a start. There we go. There's one way that something exists. But personally speaking, from, from my own approach, and I suppose this in part must be informed in some way, or quite strongly perhaps, by the fact that a lot of what I research is a former professional working career or, or, or working former professional life for me. Um, I, I go in aware of a number of the underpinning structural forces at play within institutions. I worked in inexplicitly 
you know, large P political institutions where there is a layer of political governance as well as a layer of managerial um, um managerial managing i was about to say that's that's dreadfully tautologist isn't it but a, a, a managerial influence as well as a political kind of governance influence so yeah i think that the what is what for me what is real is clearly a combination of what people experience which they bring their own values and mindsets and all the rest of it to it but then you know how those interact with um these more abstract perhaps critical structures i think and again, I think that raises a really interesting point about the degree to which ontological commitment um, arises out of psychology or out of philosophy. And, and by that, I mean, mm. it's quite interesting when you ask people what their ontological position is, and then the deduction of that ontological position is not a matter of logic. It is more about, as you say, that suite of experiences that we've had, the influences, what we prioritise as important or not, which aspect of reality we, or which aspect of the ph ph phenomenon, not, not to sort of uh, pre-assume what we're talking about, is important. Um, so it, I think it is. So when people are asking people to choose your to choose an ontology, I think we need to be clear that there is a difference between the motivations for choosing that particular ontology and then the articulation of the position that you have adopted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the two the two aren't coextensive. One requires one can you know you, you give a genetic history of why you why you think this is the case. It might be linked to psychoanalysis. So you, who knows why you've adopted that position. But but certainly in terms of articulating in a research context, then we need the stated, clear form, I think clarity about the assumptions that we're making. Uh, implications of the ontology for theory mm. and research design. Um, and I, mm. I, as I say, I do think that the, the debates sort of get a little bit muddled up at times. Um, uh, do you agree with that, Russ, or do you think I'm just um, sort of meandering? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose as a critical realist, I'd say meandering is very much your privilege if you want to. Um, I think just just before I kind of push some of it back and just say maybe perhaps outline your position, yeah. um, I think you said a number of things that are very kind of consonant with the way that I, I view stuff. And um, if, if the world of internet memes has taught us anything, and I'm not entirely sure it has, um, the one thing that I've seen an awful lot as a meme um, is this... Um, tell me you're a critical realist without telling me you're a critical realist and and i think that's that's very much kind of capturing the you know explain or demonstrate to me how you see things in such a way that suggests <laughs> as you said your motivational um frame for your philosophical position without articulating very clearly why you're doing it in this sort of very specific instance and i think that's a really interesting um split for me i think as you said between those sort of motivations and and the psychology of it um and you know again in 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 the spirit of all openness and transparency i, I don't know how much i've spent time i spent completely thinking about whether i do things through psychology or a combination of that and them and the professional disciplines that I was trained in or, you know, the managerial approaches that I was educated in. Um, yeah, I think this is an interesting opportunity for me to start to reflect on some of those things. And I would very much say this, preparing to deliver this course, the, the Prin Res Des, the Principles of Research Design, has, has really helped to crystallise why I make certain choices about certain things in a way that I do think has been for me personally really quite rewarding so i suppose i'll, I'll pop, pop that back to you and then say maybe articulate where you think your position um from whence it arises so i've been waiting for this question because it is very uh, my response will be either useful or not useful depending on, on what you want from me um i'll start by saying in an instance of research that i've engaged with um i've been self-labeled as a social constructionist or constructivist, depending mm -hmm. on whether you're talking about ontology or epistemology, which we'll come on to in, in later sessions. Um, and now that, it, uh, like all concepts and all words more generally, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I was coming from the perspective, I was interested in how particular arguments and assertions were constructed in a rhetorical fashion within text. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Now, the reason I think that's interesting is because that I was therefore not taking a position about the nature of reality. It wasn't really even implied by the work that I was doing. What I was wanting to do was say, if that's the phenomenon that I'm interested in, there are a number of different pathways to thinking about that. So I could have gone down the um, the Rus critical realist pathway and thought about how does this instantiate or reflect power structures, power relationships, mm-hmm. and thought about different ways of connecting these codes of practice documents to the underlying social, political, uh, and power relationships. But actually, I was more interested in how the text itself, and this is where I get sort of in, into sort of more sort of uh, French post-structuralism almost, although I didn't quite go that far. Très bien. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, I did read all of all of that. Very interesting. Uh, if ever you get a chance yeah. to read Dorado, which, which he's cited everywhere, isn't he? But, uh, yeah, yeah. Probably, probably read less than he's cited. But, um... Even even I, as as somebody who studied French at degree level, yeah. you know, approached Derrida with, with more than a soupçon of suspicion and concern. Yeah. So... Because I was interested in that very specific phenomenon, how, how, are, how are words and language operating within the text, I, I wanted to demarcate that as my area of interest. So my motivation for choosing constructionism was not and isn't an assertion about the nature of reality or my view of the nature of reality, but it was about which slice of reality, not untainted, but which slice mm. of reality am I interested in and which methodological position would allow me to think about that particular phenomenon that I was looking at. So walking away from that, I always think there's, um, when I was a young, when I was much younger, reading uh, David Hume's inquiries, a great empiricist thinker, and he would, he, he, would, he would be writing a particular text. And within one of, one of his early texts, the inquiries, he stated, he said, when, when I'm philosophizing, I, you know, I take all of these issues seriously, logic and induction and so on. He said, but when I walk away and I start playing backgammon, I become a naive realist. Yep, I, I, I adopt the position yeah, nice. that, yeah, yeah. that suits the, the activity I'm engaging in. So in that sense, um, is it cynicism on my part to adopt a methodology? I, it wasn't cynicism. I think it was just a rational choice, given the concerns I had. And how do you feel about that? I mean, it's, yeah. it's another way of arriving at a position very, very different mm. from sort of starting from first principles and saying, what do I believe yeah. about the nature of reality? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you, you've said a few things there that are, um, um, I hesitate to kind of say, blow my mind a little bit. If they, if, if they haven't blown it, they've at least rattled it round, shall we say. Um, and I think um, what you've done for me there, Steve, is you very much answered the question that I started off right at the very beginning about my quants prof who said, you know, I'm a positivist, I believe this. And I thought, well, doesn't everyone? I think what you've actually made me think is, well, who thinks that that's an interesting question? (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's not that it's not that even I think the most hardcore, you know, uh, constructivist is is going to deny the existence of a physical reality. It's just they're not interested. <laughs> and so I think what, what you've outlined to me sounds to me a very pragmatic approach to being the most appropriate way to access those layers of knowledge that, that you wanted to explore. I think we've both taken a, phom- a phenomenological sort of approach, yes, but yeah. we're looking at very different phenomena. Um, and certainly my, you know, so my PhD, for example, looked at the legacy of uh, a, a series of kind of policy and political decisions and how they influence local government. And I was analysing that through interviewing and focus groups, asking people to kind of share their experiences and their stories. And I, I, I extracted from that the sort of rough sense to me about how I how I felt you know, some of those shifts in power and control and who gets to ascribe or desire, decide value, for example, ha- had been operating. But you're, if I've understood you, and that's, you know, only 50-50 at best, I would say, uh, and that's my understanding, not your explanation. Um, if I've understood you, you have consciously um, moved your spotlight onto a very different set of, um, not 
linguistic per se, but sociolinguistic, perhaps we might say, um, constructs and identities. And you were interested about how those have been developed as opposed to, say, whether they were effective or desirable or, you know, socially just or whatever. Exactly. It used to cause so much consternation because people assumed when you were uh, researching executive pay that you were some sort of firebrand against pay. And I might, as a private individual, have an opinion on that. But as, as that, a researcher, yeah. I didn't have an opinion on that. That was another another set of issues. Uh, what I was really interested in is why do we, why do certain concepts of influence, particularly on organisational performance, how do, how do they get embedded in in public policy documents, and in, in what forms and what implications does that have? But at the level of the documents themselves, so it's very very narrow, almost almost to a pinpoint focus, really, in terms of laser like focus. Yeah, yes, yeah. And, it was interesting listening to you then because I think um, I started out by somewhat playfully talking, uh, saying you're a realist, okay, and um, uh, we're not afraid of the polarities in, of uh, research discussion. So I wonder, how do you feel about relativism, uh, and, and is that uh, what, what does that what does that mean, relativism? So you've got realists, that broadly speaking, unifying them together, although there are lots of different positions, some sort of belief in, in an mm. independent reality. Which can be accessed either directly, be a naive realist, or mm. through some um, mediated form. Mm-hmm. Either one. Mm. How about relativism? Are you familiar? Meta relativist? <laughs> you see, th- this is one of um, any number of terms where yeah. where I'd kind of go, well, I probably know what that is. And then when you get asked it, you think, oh, yeah, but do I? And so I suppose to me, it, it speaks of um, the this layer of independent reality being as one that is that is relative to others it it defines itself through membership or non-membership of other sort of forms of reality but i'd have to say i don't even know if that's anywhere near what other people would call it it, yeah it's interesting relativism because again i think it like a lot of these terms it slips between ontology and epistemology and sometimes yeah yeah, and sometimes we don't know which one we're talking about because i think particularly with relativism Relativism doesn't really mean there isn't an underlying reality. It just means that it can't be known <laughs> and, and it won't be known. Like you could take the position mm. that there isn't one, but you can accept there is or there isn't. And it doesn't really have much difference from a relativist point of view in the sense of it's a belief in multiple constructions of reality and, the, and it's, its most extreme version, mm. the mm. idea that everything's subjective. You know, each individual yeah. person has got their own different set of concepts and perceptions mm. about around the world. Mm. Um, and it's, it's often... I, I often see it as a a little bit like realism. I think it's it's as a boundary post, isn't it? Mm, I don't think yeah, you can't go yeah. much beyond it, but you yeah. just, I think most people sit inside that fence somewhere, don't mm, they? Mm. Um, it's a very extreme position. Sorry, sorry, Chris. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think the 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 pull I feel that draws me away from the more extreme end of relativism is, I believe, my uh, my views. I think of the existence of collective. Um, belonging to certain forms of of organizational reality that that we and whilst I think I would allow for differences in what is meant by you know being a member of an organization's culture for example and I, and I totally accept that those you know they mean different things to different people I slide more in terms of what I'm interested in researching I think towards looking at the more collective, um, element. And I think of myself perhaps more as an institutional researcher, I, I believe strongly in the presence of institutions rather than just organisations as well, um, rather than a, rather than an individual researcher. So I'm, I'm less interested in finding out what individual people think of something other than through the process maybe of wanting to look for commonalities and themes across those to see what it tells us about the sort of the the high level is not the right phrase, but I guess the, the slightly more abstract phenomena. Does is that make sense? Any sense at all? No, no, I, I, I think it does, and I think um, that notion of the collective, of the fact that we are again a relativist could take uh, could take issue with this, but we're born into a world, isn't it, which we didn't choose, and, and and is there as a something that we grapple with in some way or another, and that can be of course relative to time and place. There's no denying that as to the sets of ideas you might have. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Just to develop your idea in a different, if you take, move away from the very extreme verse of relativism, mm, I think mm. something like um, coherentism yeah. is is another form of relativism, 
mm. where we where we acknowledge that what what's going to have a, a large impact on the on your claims, your knowledge claims, and what you believe exists or doesn't exist, or what counts, will depend on your starting assumptions. But you're still constrained by patterns of thought and logic, yeah. and you and, you, and you're starting from a starting point, whatever you mm. make of that. So it's sort of a mm. relativism without without sort of arbitrariness, I think. Uh, and and it, it is interesting to think of it. If you're thinking about sort of realism, there's an independent reality. And the question is, and this comes on to epistemology, how could we know it? And then you think about relativism at the other end, and we say, there isn't a reality. And mm. we could just say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? Yeah. 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 You, you've got sort of a mirroring, a mirroring problem, haven't you, in terms of epistemology, which makes, I think, ontology, it's difficult. It's almost you start with ontology because it seems logically prior to epistemology. But I'm not sure from a, for a practicing researcher it can ever be that way. Or that you can separate them sufficiently to be able to treat them differently, I guess. Yeah. And I think often your, your, your beliefs about how we come to, to know will have mm. profound implications on, therefore, what you think you have access to knowing. And, mm. and there, may be, there may be things out there which also exist, but which you just don't feel that you can know. So they become, put it almost less just sort of um, operating ontology. You know, that you've, mm. you've got this idea of the things that, that you can know and therefore the things that you care about. Mm. And maybe there is a space for various forms of other types of being, mm. but they're, they're not within the, the sort of knowledge boundaries, the things that you can know. And that does take us back to a strong theme in the history of philosophy in terms of there's empiricism, the idea that what can be known are the things that we can touch, sense, and feel, mm. as you mentioned earlier on. Mm. Rationalism, what can be known are concepts, logical operations, particularly mathematics mm. would be the exemplar there. Or maybe there's something where we construct somewhere in between that. We, we, we mm. do have senses and impressions, but we as human beings are what bring the constructs and the concepts to the game. Mm. Um, so you sort of got to sort of Hume on the empiricist side, like Descartes. Or Spinoza, yeah. one of my favourites there, but you know, mm -hmm. throw him in. Um, and then you've got people like Kant, who sort of tried to bring those two, what he saw, opposing views, rather mm. like our realism and relativism are seen as opposing views, and tries to achieve a synthesis between the two positions. And I wonder if, to some extent, we all do that, yeah, whether acknowledged or unacknowledged. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think even people I've met even people I've met who are um, explicitly, even if even if they're not always aware of it, positioning themselves in a very positivistic manner, and you know, well, what what's what's real are just truth and facts, and we can know all these things. E even those people, I think, that that very any extreme position like that, in fact, any extreme position falls apart, doesn't it? Under even you know gentle kind of probing, when you start to think about. Um, an opposing perspective you know we talk about what culture means or you know whether there's a sense of a national psyche or you know whether there are are, are other concepts that we could know of um but not necessarily fully know um and and so i think you're right that what what is what is often the case is this polarizing perspective of, and this, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. I think you know, you you show things as a spectrum um, bounded by you know two ends, and we're only then really interested in what's you know the thick black line we put at one end or the other of of that spectrum. When actually, what's really interesting is how one blends into the other through various kind of stages um and and that i guess you know lots of us i think uh, and by us here i suppose i i mean academics discussing this or perhaps training of the and teaching of the students we are guilty of perhaps reinforcing that that dichotomous view of ontology particularly and you know if that is what you think is happening you think it is you know more dichotomous or we can get it to four boxes uh, it's no wonder it becomes quite difficult to teach i think so yeah it, it was very interesting Russ. you made me think of something there about when we're thinking about different aspects of, of a phenomenon we want to look at uh, something which is very current at the moment in organization studies particularly is, is researching emotions and the role of emotions within organizational structures which certainly there weren't many papers on that subject 40 years ago instance in order in yeah sure studies. and again so this is where it's, it's nice to think about this these terms realism and relativism so i do do i think there really are emotions and emotions that are independent of me 
Mm. I, I feel as so, so you start thinking, well, maybe, m maybe not, depending on, on the way you want to look at it. And then you're thinking relativistically, do emotions depend on the individual experience? Then you think, yes, I think so. I think that, mm -hmm. that seems uncontentious. But already you're thinking, well, again, what do these terms mean in that context? Are, are emotions something that we struggle to fit into mm. our sort of binaristic thinking when it, when it comes to just separating reality out in that way? And, mm. and again, it takes us into a different meaning of the word real doesn't it? Because mm. I think if there was a time when real meant universals that exist. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Eternally outside of human thinking. And, mm. I th and I think the concept itself has drifted to meaning something, really something positivistic. Well, now we think of the real as that which can be touched, measured, weighed, mm. or whatever it may be. Um, so to say you're a realist can be quite confusing depending on who you're speaking to, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and I think anyone who's eaten out on uh, St. Valentine's Day would uh, be able to point to um, evidence of emotions taking place without reference to themselves. Uh, I've seen any number of rows in a uh, in a restaurant in that context. Yeah, ab absolutely. And this is this is the thing. We, it's easy in many ways to kind of make glib statements. I, I say glib, you know, relatively simplistic statements. But again, all of this starts to kind of fall apart and crumble when you ask some of those very difficult questions. And I guess in a way, what we are perhaps doing here is less um, helping people to come to, quote, the right position. We'd all agree, you and I would agree, there is no right position. Um, there is certainly, from what we discussed, a coherent position with the other things in people's lives. But actually, rather than teaching them the positions that they can pick one from, like a menu, we are testing possibly to destruction some of their a priori concepts or perceptions of their own positions and the way that they see things through explaining alternative views to all of them so that when they do you know the dust settles a bit and they kind of can look around and you know say uh, as phd students okay this is kind of roughly where I am and where I think I need to go, they have perhaps more confidence in being able to state that as a position. What, what, what does that kind of feel like to you as an as a analogy? No, I think it works really well. And actually, it, being interdisciplinary, sorry, <laughs> working across disciplines, there you go, there's another way of saying it. Um, I think, when I think back to, to my days of studying philosophy, one thing that struck me when I entered into a business school, I was quite disoriented. Because people will be saying, "What's your philosophical position?" And, and I genuinely, and I'm not, I'm not, not being <laughs> glib here. I didn't know what they meant by that, because it was an activity of thinking philosophy, as, as I could see it. Of here, here is a phenomenon or an issue or a process. What is happening? What assumptions are we making? How do we decompose and analyze this phenomenon? And I think if we think of research in the, the, those terms, mm. if you're engaging in research and you're wanting to highlight a specific aspect of reality, so you want to measure GDP in sub-Saharan Africa, or you want to uh, understand how people um, create meaning around their emotional states over time. The interesting question to me is, what am I assuming when I'm taking that approach? Mm, absolutely. Um, and I suppose that is me being slightly sort of self-focused because that's the approach I took in my own PhD. But I think that is really what, what is at the heart of this, isn't it? What are my ontological assumptions? which doesn't come from the shelf. It, mm. You need to learn how to articulate what that position is uh, in a coherent way and to use the, the language uh, you know, of, of methodologies um, and ontologies and epistemologies. But really, you're asking yourself, what, what, are, what am I assuming? And that way, you've got mm. more control over understanding the nature of the knowledge claims you make in terms of what aspect of reality am I making a claim about uh, and being clear that you're not making a claim outside of that particular area of interest mm, or focus. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, that that makes a lot of sense to me, and it, it's um, it's made me reflect on you know some of my other bits of research. So I'm I, I'm I've just got up here um, on my computer a, a table from a paper I did that drew on some of my PhD interview data. But in order to help provide a context for that, um, I did um, I did an analysis of the key words used in the political foreword of some white papers. So white papers are thought pieces 
um, put out there, but the ones that are strongly indicative of, of a future policy direction in, in the British political sense. So uh, the government will write a white paper, and then what you would see is, is it's it's um, much more likely to be what happens in, in later um, lawmaking than a green paper, but there is still an element of, of almost consultation to it. And that the foreword written by usually uh, in, in the UK, the Secretary of State for Government, for local government, um, is an interesting sort of boiling down of what they think is important in policy for, you know, public services. So I, I did a bit of an analysis of, of just four papers from 99 to 2011 and looked at the frequency with which certain words moved in or out of vogue. Um, so, you know, some of the interesting things to me. So the very first paper um, from the new Labour, the post-97 government, was called Modernising Government in 1999. And there you go. Obviously, it, we're talking about it, it positioning itself as something that is having to fix the machinery uh, of, of governance. Uh, unsurprisingly, you know, it uses the term um, modern <laughs> and government a lot, you know, a significant sort of number of the uses of all of the key terms. So so government, for example, represented something like 42% of all of the, you know, top 20 or so key terms, the instances that came up with that. Now, what we see local in that is is very little. There are only a couple of mentions of, of, of local and localism. But the next two papers were called Strong and Prosperous Communities and Communities in Control. That's 2006, 2008. And in those, the use of the word local as a marker of or of their political goals in terms of policy and practice for local government sort of explodes. You know, it's hugely, it's all about localism and, you know, local needs and local benefits and like working with local communities, you know, and very much communities in control. The focus of that is clearly very different to modernizing government, which is an internal focus on, on the machinery as opposed to an out outwards focus on um, on the people for whom the machinery is working or on whose behalf. So I think I remember having some interesting conversations with a couple of my co-authors on that who didn't instinctively get the power that those words as a framing tool had for what would end up in, in, in actual policy and legislation. And so I, I, they, you know, a couple of them were kind of saying back to me, yeah, but how do you know that that's what they felt was important? And I'm saying, well, I, I think the importance of that is a kind of layer of meaning all, all of its own. I don't need to ask that person <laughs> because they're not going to listen to me or ask me. I don't need to ask that person what they felt was important. I'm just judging them on the words that they've used. And so what I'm saying is that their use of words in that context <laughs> is significant does that make sense i suppose no absolutely and, and, and as i say that chimes uh, and we didn't know this before this podcast but that just chimed precisely with my own approach in my phd mm. it, it was about mm. i was interested in how the words in, in and of themselves articulated a position um and i attached it to a particular theoretical framework in doing so but it wasn't so much yeah. in the self-report, or it wasn't uh, the, the phrase I used, which I thought was, was uh, a bit cheeky. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a cognitive excavation that I was involved in. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I like I, it. I, I wasn't, wasn't looking to dig out the inner thought processes of the individuals involved, particularly because it was a collective document. It was you know, a collective author document. There'd be a chair of the mm. committee, but many, many uh, influences on, on the final outcome. Well, I was interested in what, what, how does that final outcome, what, what does it mean? Now, there is another question, how is it received? And then, and then yeah. you move into, into reader theory and reception theory and so on. But it has a structure itself. Inhabiting that structure, that's a rather loose term, but I'll use it. Inhabiting that structure is a set of assumptions and some core fundamental concepts or ways of construing, in mm. my particular instance, what an executive is and the relationship yeah. they have. To, to, to organizational performance that you could you could have interviewed people to get their understanding of that but I was just interested to see how it was being encoded in those code of practice documents and I think that's as valid as any and I think there's an, as interesting a perspective as any on, on the question but it's different it's not the one that people might normally expect would would assume now I think um what is interesting again for me around this is that in other disciplines what 
you've essentially described and I've essentially described will be called textual analysis or yes. close reading or yeah. you know it, it, if you're in if you're in an arts subject this is this is largely what people are doing they're looking at those things and it's no surprise that you know people like Lacan and Derrida and you know the kind of post-structuralists the people who are talking about you know the death of the author talking about the existence of the text as an independent unit uh, um, that can be received in lots of different ways but that can also have its own kind of layer of reality perhaps if we put it like that it's no surprise I think that lots of those theorists come out of that kind of broad you know intellectual area yeah exactly and and uh, i did spend lots of time reading many of them <laughs> although although uh, <laughs> they, they form like almost like a, i used the word last time i think a penumbra a penumbra so, so they're there but they're not directly there you know they, they inform it a dark gloomy shadow yes <laughs> and, and, one of, and, and literally i mean literary uh, literary analysis and uh, is one of my it's one of my first loves really in many mm, ways mm. i'll often uh, um I don't know. If, I don't know if anyone else has ever experienced this, but when I buy a new text, a, a new classic novel, it's the introduction that I really like. I, I like the analytical okay. section that explains what's happening, and then and then you read the book and so on. So I think that that wanting to understand how text operates is is one is just one way of accessing mm, what's mm. happening. But it's not the only one. I think that's the key thing, isn't it? it, it, it it's it's just accepting that yeah, there, there were actually physical beings who. who type those words onto a screen for instance absolutely uh, yeah yeah and as you exactly as you said there are multiple ways that we could try now and i am deliberately stepping into epistemology multiple ways you could try and access or facilitate an understanding of that you could be you know asking people who read things in a contemporary perspective what they felt of it and how they engaged with the text and you know what what it was like you could do that if they were on an academic course you could do it if they were in a reading group you could using kind of joust and the sort of horizon of expectancy theory think about what was its interpretation and its reception in the day you know when it was a contemporary text rather than you know a classical historical text so there are all sorts of things you know what did inspire um you get this this notion of the kind of anxiety of influence that when people write yes, things yep. they're you know being driven by the weight of the people who've gone before them if you're writing if you're a playwright now for example i'm sure everyone feels you know shakespeare resting on at least one of their shoulders and so there are all sorts of ways we could be looking at people who, who are currently writing you know um plays on or works that are that are you know neo-historical for example there's an awful lot of, of what they call neo-victorian literature contemporary fiction written in the victorian era but that draws upon this established and sometimes common yet incorrect understanding of what it was like in the victorian era and that it has a whole you know sense of meaning behind it so have i just argued that neither of us should really be in a business school i think is that is that where we've just come to <laughs> i think uh, well uh, what i what i would say is that, that one of the joys of working as a, a business school is porous isn't it we are, we, we are open open to influence being such a young delicate growing subject aren't we subject discipline as we are yes yeah yes, absolutely um, and I think it's good. And I think that variety is consistent with what we said, isn't it? If, if we really do believe that there are layers or different forms or different types of reality, then it, it presumably it behoves us to use different tools and techniques uh, and different approaches to examine them. So it seems yeah. to be consistent. And, and that they need to be just, I mean, we're back to kind of, I suppose, coherentism and that kind of a sense of relative um, perspective in that whatever are the phenomena that you are investigating there will be aspects of those phenomena that you are just taking as granted or that you are saying oh well, i'm going to use this person's theoretical perspective or this person's you know um argument of what anthropomorphization in marketing literature looks like um and there'll be other aspects that will you say but the other bits of it that i want to find out about are these and that's the sort of the the thread isn't it that we start to weave through our research projects indeed indeed and and just taking a step back now here where, where have we reached <laughs> so we've sort of framed the conversation around realism we touched on relativism didn't we and then we came mm. back to sort of i, I suppose um sort of a more diverse approach to thinking about mm. research and research positions in terms of practical implications for people though in terms of in actual research 
project. I suppose just to recap, what we're suggesting is the main, well, there's different ways of looking at it, isn't it? One thing is you want to be certainly coherent in your position and, cons and consistent. And that consistency is about your, whatever it is you're claiming, those statements mm -hmm. that are claims or the methods that you use, you just need to be consistent with your methodological position, which is why mm -hmm. I think it's always important not to think that you start with that and then, I mean, you could do it this way, but I think very few people do. You don't start with yeah, a choice yeah. as though it's a discrete choice to be made, in, independent of the rest of the work. I think really it's integral. Everything's integrated, isn't it? And I, I think that's why people will vacillate and go back and forth over the period of completing mm. a PhD or a research project, where you go back and think about how consistent am I? Is there something that I need to address here? Am I make am I overstating this position because I'm assuming a different ontological position, which isn't really the one which is informing mm. the research? So I think it's about almost having a sort of an intellectual tidiness about things as well, isn't it? Mm. Making sure everything is in its place where it should be, um, and there's nothing sort of left over and, and creeping outside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I suppose almost um, I'm going to I'm going to have a go at a bit of a probably a ham fisted uh, analogy. Um, if, if we were thinking about uh, different tools for different situations, to what extent are you looking at tools and how they are similar? And to what extent are you looking at tools and how they're different? And so, you know, if you had to organize all of the tools that you have in your house, depending on the outcome that you want to achieve, you know, a big box called tools <laughs> might be sufficient. Yeah. Or it might, you might break it down into, you know, twisty tools, cutting tools, hitting tools, and, you know, um, tools for poking holes in things. Um, or you might need to get it down to, well, these are the 19 different types of saw blades I have for cutting different materials with different power tools or hand tools in at different times. Um, and all of that is fine if what you want to achieve can be reasonably practicably done through the, the, the distribution of the breakdown and the use of concepts that you've got. And I think to extend that analogy, which I, I'm going to build upon now, you would also Great. have different tools in different rooms, different types of rooms. So, mm. you know, sort of in that space where you might listen to the radio or watch television, you've still got tools, but they're of a different nature because it's a different Absolutely. aspect, aspect mm. of your domestic life or in this um, phenomenon that you want to engage with. And others are in the garage and others are mm -hmm. So I think as well, the tools will vary by the space in which they're going to be applied. I think that's... Mm. As, as well as being variable within that space. Absolutely. And, and people's implicit, often very, sorry, explicit request for, tell me what labels I should put on my boxes of tools <laughs> is, you know, well, I can tell you, but that doesn't mean that everything that's, that you put in that box is going to be something to hit something with. <laughs> you know, that it might not be. Um, and, and that's why I think... I mean, that's why in part, you know, you look at you look at 10 um, research methods books in, in our field and there'll be 10 different ways of breaking down the tensions or axes or positions or whatever. Um, and why I think ultimately what works for you in that is one that makes sense to you and that you can interact with and that you can, I suppose, inhabit uh, in a way that allows you to deliver your research projects. We are bringing it right back down to, well, look, these are some of the big ideas, but fundamentally, if you need to poke a hole in something, a hammer is probably not a great tool. I wish you'd told me that a couple of weeks ago, Russ. <laughs> 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 I'm, not the, I, I'm not the best at DIY. I need this type of advice. <laughs> I, I, I too. Now, I also think that analogy breaks down a little bit because I have certainly used hammers to break holes into things. So there we go. <laughs> Poking holes and things. But yes, I tend to have a, a, a very limited set of tools, so they have to be multifunctional, sadly. Uh, that's the problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so so let's. I think you've really nicely sort of summed it up for us and kind of brought it back um, uh, in in the sense of you know managing people's level of disappointment. Um, I, I like the horizon of disappointment. I like to set that early and low uh, so that people are then, you know, not disappointed because they know that we're not going to be answering the questions that they might have. But these conversations are never about answering somebody else's questions. They're about illustrating how we have answered each other's questions, I guess, or our own questions and hoping that that provides some form of illumination of the thought process, our, our working out, I suppose, isn't it? You know, rather than just 
the number at the end of the mathematical sum. Yeah, it's very much an activity, this process for the moment, yes. isn't it? I think it's about, it's about almost we're, we're um, being sort of uh, vulnerable, aren't we? And we're, and we're showing that actually all of these concepts, that, that they can be so subtle and difficult to, to grasp hold of um, that when you start thinking about them, that's when you get yourself in twists and turns, don't you? In a real muddle. You start questioning yeah. your understanding. Um, none of them are straightforward. Uh, I think it's important to uh, to realise that, isn't it? That it isn't it isn't a case of choosing a couple of my my background's accounting, professional backgrounds accounting, you know, and I would have to choose the appropriate accounting standard for a particular problem. It's not that type of choice that we're making. Uh, mm. it, it's one which you will think deeply about now and in the future, mm. and, and yeah. keep coming back to and and probably having different answers at different times. And, and shifting over time, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you're absolutely right, shifting over time, but also shifting over contexts. And depending on you know who you end up writing with, you will act in different ways with different groups of people, and, and business and management and, and law are, I guess, very collaborative um, disciplines where people are writing a lot of the time, aren't they? They are. And again, one of the, one of the joys, of course, of this type of dialogue, interaction with people, is that you will realise Actually, I thought I understood my, what my position was, but when someone asked me to articulate it, to really explain the importance, that's much more difficult. Um, but when, when you've got someone engaged with you, I think sometimes writing down on a piece of paper without challenge probably doesn't lead to as acute and precise uh, an articulation mm. of your position. What is it the, uh, the great philosopher Mike Tyson once said, which is, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And <laughs> on that pugilistic bombshell, <laughs> I, I shall I shall draw us to a close here. Um, thanks uh, very much again uh, to you, Steve, um, my co-host for Research Matters. And thank you, Russ. It's enjoyable. No problem. Uh, um, and we will continue this process next week, um, attempting to draw a distinction between this and epistemology and good luck with that i say to you steve yeah i think we're going to have to go do, <laughs> do some some training and deep thinking and maybe sitting in a sitting in some sort of darkened room before quiet darkened rooms very good excellent well thank you very much you've been listening to research matters um, where we look at an inside view of all things about high quality research and business management and law thanks very much and goodbye this has been Research Matters, where we bring high quality research design to life in the business and management fields. With Russ Glennon, Steve Wynn, and Stephen Buzzduggan. <laughs>